Well, shall we make a start, friends? Thanks for coming along. <laughs> and uh, I realise there aren't very many of us, but I think, shall we give it a go? Yeah, we're up, we're up. Okay, yeah, yeah, I can send you the script as well if um, that helps. So, um, yeah, shall, shall we pray and uh, we'll, we'll see how we get on. Um, loving God, uh, we come to you now and uh, we just want to open ourselves to you and uh, ask that you help us to, to learn from you this evening. I realise we're a little fewer in number uh, than we might otherwise have been, but... Uh, you promised that even if there were just two or three of us, you'd be with us. Uh, so um, come to us, we pray. Uh, help us as we grapple with uh, big questions, but really important ones, which just go to the heart of why we experience life and how we understand you to be at work in our lives. Uh, come near to us, we pray. And uh, may this evening be to, to your glory and enable us to be uh, better disciples of you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, thank you. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll see how we go uh, this evening. And uh, the, the stuff that we're exploring is, is quite near to my heart, really. It, it's, uh, uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about how I got into thinking about these issues and uh, stuff that happened, uh, which got me grappling with these issues uh, and which... Uh, sort of brought me to quite a significant moment of change <laughs> uh, in my life and my view of God uh, and how he relates to us. But um, before we look at the specific questions of providence and the extent to which our lives uh, and the details of our lives are planned by God, uh, I want to begin by posing a question, which I think is one of the biggest of all, uh, and it's this. Uh, how well does your experience of God match your beliefs about God? Um, even if we don't have uh, much interest in psychology, we might have come across the term cognitive dissonance, uh, which describes uh, the stress that people feel uh, when we try to hold together contradictory beliefs and behaviours uh, in our lives. So psychologists sometimes give the example of someone who continues to smoke uh, in, in spite of the fact that they know it's doing them harm. Drives you mad. How do you resolve that? You either uh, give up smoking uh, or, or you just live in denial of the, 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 the fact that you might be uh, harming yourself. Uh, and I sometimes wonder if there's a similar sort of dissonance that we experience as people of faith. And... Uh, we encounter it in times of crisis particularly because a lot of us, I think, have been raised, we'll talk about this in a moment, with this idea that God is always in control. Uh, but then we come up against some pretty grim stuff happening uh, and it gets very hard to, to reconcile the two. Uh, another uh, thing which came to mind as I was preparing for tonight was uh, a book I read several years ago uh, with the, the title, Everything Happens uh, for a Reason. Uh, or uh, to give it its complete title, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I Have Loved. And uh, it's written by Kate Bowler. Uh, she is an associate professor uh, of religious history at Duke Divinity School. And she was made a professor at Duke at 35 years of age. Duke is one of the most prestigious uh, seminaries in the whole of the United States. You get to be a professor at Duke at 35. I mean, you're making it. So she was a coming thing. She really was. And uh, at the age of 35, she then gets diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer with a very young family. Uh, remarkably, she's still alive uh, at the moment. Uh, but in the introduction to her book, I think this came out five, six years ago, she says this, anyone who has ever lived in the aftermath of something like this, what happened to her, uh, knows that it signifies the arrival of three questions so simple that they seem in turn too shallow and too deep. Why? God, are you here? And what does this suffering mean? 
The first of those questions had enormous weight and urgency. I could hear him. I could almost make out an answer. But then it was drowned out by what I've now heard a thousand times. Everything happened for a reason. Or God is writing a better story. And then she adds dryly, apparently God is also busy closing doors and opening windows. He can't get enough of that. And uh, we probably can identify all of us uh, with what she says. Uh, if we can't identify with it, we will eventually. Because at some point, I think for all of us in our faith journey, something comes along which will stop us in our tracks. Some experience. It'll be an illness. It'll be an accident. It will be uh, sometimes what happens, uh, of, you know, something arising in our body or that of someone we love. And we ask ourselves, why cancerous cells grow? why an immune system turns on a body and doesn't do what it was supposed to do. Or we will be on the other end of the actions of some other human agent. Accidental, careless driver, uh, or the deliberate intent of another. People just do mean things. Uh, and the consequence can be physical injury, it can be loss, it can be some kind of relationship crisis which leaves us feeling devastated and we think, who can we trust? And can I trust God? You know? Uh, and whatever it is, we will all have stories to tell because we'll all have something we've been through. Uh, and I guess the question we want to pose is, ca can my theology stretch big enough or our theology stretch big enough to, to kind of flex and be able uh, to take this in? So what sort of framework and what sort of view of God so we have to help us make sense of what happens. And of course this doesn't uh, just relate to our personal lives. It has to do with what is happening around us. So it's not just why does God allow suffering in my life, why does he allow suffering in the world? Why is Vladimir Putin still in power in Russia? And why is the slaughter of Ukrainians and you know the bombing of these beautiful uh, buildings in Odessa being allowed to happen. Why is uh, President Sadad or Assad uh, still in power in Syria? Uh, what about the Holocaust? Which is actually, I think, the, the still 80 years on, is kind of the, the benchmark uh, arising of evil uh, on, on such a huge structural, organized scale. It's, it's still a kind of egregious example of evil acted out. There's a kind of Holocaust test uh, that often comes up that theology has to pass. Um, and I, I, I said this morning, I still find in my conversations with people, uh, this issue of suffering and this issue of what God is doing is the one that, that comes up all the time in conversation. So, so as I said this morning, this is, this is the question that never goes away. Now in the church that I grew up in, the answer that we were given to those questions generally went along the following lines, uh, that everything that happened was for a reason, that it was predestined, uh, that God planned this all in advance, all the details of our lives. Uh, and, and by that, uh, what they, they, they meant to not just our individual lives, but the whole sweep of human history. And I, I still think that that perspective seems to be like a default for a lot of people. I, I still hear people say when bad things happen, well, it's all part of God's plan, or God is in control, uh, or God is on his throne. I remember going to preach in a church, uh, a little tiny chapel in Warwickshire that I used to go and preach in occasionally, and it happened uh, a couple of days after the Brexit vote. I was really upset. <laughs> I was still trying to get over what had happened, and I met this guy as he greeted me, and he said, well, that was a bit of a shock. Still, God's on his throne, <laughs> or God's in control. And I'm thinking, but we've, we've all just taken collective votes to do this, this big thing. And, um, I, I mean, for what makes this more personal, the, the thing I was going to talk about was I remember it was 15 years ago, and I was someone in our family being killed in a road accident. Uh, and again, I've I, I been, I, been brought up to believe that that was God's plan. Uh, and it just seemed at the time to be a very cruel plan. 
and a very elaborate one. If I told you the, the way that the, the accident happened uh, and unfolded. Uh, and then, uh, as I was trying to work all of this through, I, um, I, I ended up doing a college module about two months later where I was introduced to a, a sort of different perspective uh, on, on these questions called open theism. And the more I studied it, the more, you know, you have these light bulb moments and you think every, every this, this just is making sense. Uh, so really, that's what I want to explore uh, after the break this evening. Uh, and, and there are two things I, I want to do in that second uh, bit of the evening. I'll introduce the sort of key principles of open theism and I'll talk about the practical implications. But before uh, we do, I thought I'd just take a little moment to give a, a, a brief definition of the traditional view, because it's quite helpful to sort of have that set out. We'll talk about that for a moment. We'll take some time to discuss it, how, how we feel about it. Uh, and then we'll go on to, to look at the alternative. Now, um, th the traditional view is sometimes referred to as, as a reformed one uh, or, or a Calvinist one, this idea of predestination. We might not think of ourselves as Calvinists, but it's, it's kind of sometimes in battles of ideas, some things win out, don't they? And, and, and they just get a, a, a foothold in the church's uh, imagination. So I think there's a picture of Calvin, uh, is there, Mark? Here he is. Um, Calvin was a contemporary of Martin Luther uh, and one of the key theologians and leaders uh, in, in the Reformation. Uh, so the, these, these people who are challenging the ideas of the Catholic Church in the 16th century. Uh, he was French, so really he was Jean, uh, I suppose, uh, and, um, but lived uh, a lot of his life in, in Switzerland, in Basel and then Geneva was called the Pope of Geneva uh, by some people because of the, the control that he, um, he exercised there. Brilliant lawyer, was trained as a lawyer and had this brilliant mind uh, and was a great systematizer. So Calvin was brilliant at kind of laying out his ideas in a systematic way. Uh, hence the reason why there is, is still a, a school of thought called Calvinism today. Now, um, when people talk about what Calvin uh, believed the essence of his teaching, they come up uh, often with a, a snappy little um, uh, acrostic uh, called Tulip. And that sums up what are classically called the five points of Calvinism. Um, Calvin didn't come up with this himself. I think it was some American pastor in the, uh, the early 20th century. But there are five uh, key views uh, in, in, in Calvinism as is traditionally taught. Uh, and the first is what's called total depravity. Uh, so this is a view of human nature which places uh, a very heavy emphasis on sinfulness, uh, the idea that within us there is nothing of merit uh, to please God. You know, we, we are totally sinful and therefore completely deserving of punishment. So no better angels of the human nature sat here. You know, and uh, they, they will quote verses like... Um, Isaiah 64, where, where Isaiah says, our, our righteousness is like filthy rags. Uh, I grew up with this stuff every week. It, it, it does something to you. It takes, takes a while to, to get it out of your system. So number one, total depravity. Number two uh, is unconditional election. So this is the idea that not everyone can become a Christian. And that only people, uh, the only people who can do so are those who God has called to himself. And they are the elect. So, so we as humans are not capable of initiating a relationship to God. They can only respond to a call from God. And, and God has decided before a creation who will respond and who won't. And so linked to that uh, as well is uh, what, the Cal what Calvinists will refer to as limited atonement. Uh, so this is a view that says that the, the effect of Jesus dying on the cross is not for everyone. The fruit of that is not for everyone, but only for the elect. Now, um, I studied this again. I looked at this again before tonight. Um, it gets quite nuanced. I, I find it a little bit hard to sort of, it feels a bit like angels dancing on pinheads at this point. But Calvinists will point to verses like uh, 1 Timothy 4.10. Uh, thanks, Mark. 
uh, where Paul says to Timothy, we've put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all people, and especially of those who believe. So they, they will argue that there is something that Jesus was doing on the cross for people who would come to believe in him that is different to what he was doing for everyone. Uh, and they'll point to other verses like um, uh, what Jesus says in John 10. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So a Calvinist will say to you, well, that's different to saying he lays down his life for everyone. So only laying down his life for those who are of the, the sheep pen who are going to come to know him. And then two more principles, the I and the P, are irresistible grace, uh, the idea that uh, for those who are called by God, who are of the elect, the Holy Spirit will be able to overcome any attempts that you make to resist God's call in your life. So it's very much God is in control. And uh, John Piper, who is a, a well-known reformed teacher, says the doctrine of irresistible grace means that God is sovereign and can overcome all resistance when he wills. Uh, and then finally, Calvinists will talk about perseverance of the saints. Uh, and that's an idea that some of us might have heard summed up by the idea or that little phrase, once saved, always saved. You ever heard that? So can someone lose their faith? Can someone lose their salvation? Well, um, a Calvinist will say, no, they can't. And when you say to them, because I've had this conversation, when you say, well, I think I've known people who've lost their faith, well, they'll say, but they never had faith in the first place, obviously. Uh, so, um, interesting concept. Now, um, it's probably fair to say, if you agree with that model of how God works in the world, you are, I think, agreeing with other principles uh, and which are bound up with this idea of human freedom. So I'm putting up a couple of questions that uh, I think Calvinism answers in a certain way. Uh, and then a little bit later, we'll look at how this, this alternative view answers them. So first of all, does God know the future totally? Well, the answer is yes, because the future is fixed. Uh, the future is predetermined. And then the second question is, go does God know counterfactuals? Uh, now, a counterfactual is events that wouldn't occur if, um, or would occur rather, if, if we'd followed an alternative path. It is possible that, uh, you know, I, I may not have come here this evening. I could have stayed at home and uh, not watched the cricket because it, it's raining, uh, but I don't know. Watch the highlights of the Grand Prix. I hope you're not feeling shortchanged now. Are you with me? Well, God doesn't know counterfactuals because there are no counterfactuals. The world is operating as he has always intended it to be. Thirdly, an important question, does, does God take a risk in creation? Does he, um, does he take a risk? Well, no, he doesn't. Uh, because he's already worked out how humans are going to respond and the world will respond. Does God specifically permit all evils? Yes, because he's permitting everything. It's, it's, all, it's all worked out. And what is the nature of human freedom? Well, Calvinists have this idea of, of a sort of freedom that they call volitional. So we have the freedom to act uh, within the constraints of the circumstances God determines our lives will, will, will be. Uh, now, one of the challenges is, how do you say God is sovereign in all things, but hold us responsible for uh, our sin? Uh, and, and the, the question I've, or the answer I've heard is kind of that, well, when we sin, it's because of our fallen human condition. It's on us. But when we do good, it's what God has predestined. And then a the last question, which I think is important for how we live as Christians, can our God change God's mind? Well, no, it can't. Because God's already always decided what to do. Now, um, I don't know what we think of this. Maybe, maybe this, this is stuff which resonates with us. Maybe this is stuff which we've always been brought up with. Uh, and I don't, want to, um, I don't want to stand here in front of you and say it's all completely unbiblical. Because it's, it's not. You can find plenty of verses which, which back up this uh, perspective. But I just thought it would be, be helpful to pause uh, for a couple of minutes. Whether we want to split into groups, I'm not sure. Uh, 
there aren't very many of us, uh, or, or we may just want to talk about this for 30, 10 minutes, uh, sitting where we are. But just some questions. What do I agree with about this view? And uh, are they up there, Mark? Am I see? Uh, what do I agree with about this view? And is there anything that makes me anxious uh, about this view? What's the point of prayer? Yeah. 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 yeah well, no, I think we'll come on to. I think it's important. Years ago, uh, when I was at Yardley Wood, I did a sermon series on prayer, and before the sermon series, I said to the church a couple of months in advance. Give me your questions on prayer. What, what do you actually want us to tackle in this sermon series? And I thought people would come back with questions like, how do I pray? Or can you give me you know, traditions of the church to pray? And the question came back basically from lots of people, what's the point of this? Does it actually make any difference? It was far more than existential. But now that C.S. Lewis line, prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. Doesn't he say that as a sort of shadow line as I think of it? scene where he, he, he says that. I'm not sure. Yeah. You might not be <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you can't only God can Well, there is that, yeah, what's the point then? Yeah, if, if, it's, if everything is pre-decided, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Paul, were you going to? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go on, Paul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you're right. So there's, there's I, I, I agree. And actually, yeah, the, the question of hope, and I mean, from a missionary perspective, the question of evangelism, what, what is, uh, I mean, it's one of the fascinating things when the, the Baptist Missionary Society uh, first came about, the, the big argument they had, and the big argument it emerged out of was, was whether evangelism was even a right thing to do. Because y- you might be preaching the gospel before those who weren't of the elect. So y- you could be casting your pearls before swine, uh, which which just, yeah, it, it seems quite a bleak view, doesn't it? I mean, I guess, we'll look at open theatre now. The, the other two things I, I have, I mean, I, I just grapple fundamentally with this idea that God creates people who he's never going to give a chance to of responding to his love. Uh, I, I think for the extreme Calvinists, possibly not. You, you, you have that idea of limited atonement. Um, it, it is tough, yeah, and, and I think the question I will sometimes, or, or the, 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 the question you, you, you have coming back will be often, well, who are we to question God's love? And who are we to question, uh, y- you know, what, what love looks like? Y- y- you know, and, and if God is so perfect, and God is so appalled by sin, how can God allow sin to go unpunished? Uh, that wouldn't be a very loving thing to do. Uh, so you're getting into quite troubling notions of God's character for me. Um, the other thing I was just going to say was I, I, I think there are these big existential questions, but I just think, um, I mean, pastoral questions... This this idea of everything being predestined, I think, sometimes gets people into a, a pattern of thinking, well, I must follow the plan. 
there is a plan laid out for me and I must always be honest. So this comes up particularly with marriage. Uh, and, uh, you know, whenever I was growing up, there was this idea uh, that was very prevalent, and I guess it may have been for us, that you had to find the one. <laughs> there may be billions of people out there in the planet, but there's only one person who God has actually predestined you to marry, and you've, you've got to find that person. And I do know um, one person in my last church uh, struggled with this idea that they may have not found the one and may have married the wrong person. Uh, and it really troubled them. I mean, what a terrible, but, but that's a terrible thought to think at some point I have strayed from a path and there is no way to get back on that path. Um, and maybe, you know, we, we may not always make the right decisions, but I don't think that it's, yeah. It is, yeah, yeah. And it's just a desperate, uh, but I just a desperately sad situation to be in, to, to think that somewhere I've, I've kind of, uh, I've fallen away. Pardon? Well, I know, I know. I'm not sure how that question would be answered, Jim. I don't know. It, it does, yeah. Well, I think this is why the dissonance comes in, that you, you, yeah, yeah, that you, you, you run up against these things. No, I, 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 I agree. Well, shall we, um, shall we look at open theism for a bit? So I, I just want to talk about this alternative perspective, uh, which I know that I find um, very helpful. And um, it's, uh, you okay, Pat? Can you hear? Okay, so I'll try and I'll try and look at you. Yeah. So, what if things are different? Uh, what if God has not pre-planned everything? Uh, and what if God is instead open to His creatures and open to the role that they might play in determining their future uh, and in shaping the future uh, of our world? What uh, if God is actually giving? us the freedom uh, to make moral decisions, including the freedom to accept uh, or reject him. Uh, and the key word in all of this is open. Uh, open future, open God. God open to other possibilities. So I just want to talk a bit about the, the principles of, of open theism. Uh, and the first of one, the, the key one, is, uh, is the love of God. So we can't make it out very well, but uh, uh, there's a picture here. Uh, you might just make out in the middle Rembrandt's uh, prodigal son. Uh, so for me, for all many of us, I'm sure, one of, if not the most compelling uh, picture of the nature of God you have in Scripture. The father loves his two sons. And when one of them makes a decision to walk away from his love, the father allows him to do so in spite of the pain which it costs him. So we, we've got here the image of the son who walks away and who then decides to return home to a father, comes to his senses, what am I doing? Got to get back. And finds a father who is watching and waiting, scanning the horizon and hoping he'll return, but not with a guarantee that he might do so, if you go with the story. And of course, we understand that in light of wider, uh, the wider biblical theme of God's love. So there seems to be a picture, and you find it often in the Old Testament, uh, of God experiencing uh, a pain and a vulnerability that he puts himself through in order to be in relationship with humans. 
So you might think of a passage like uh, Ezekiel 16, uh, an allegory uh, of, of over unfaithful Jerusalem, where God speaks of a, 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 as a kind of spurned lover who despairs for how his love has not been returned uh, by his people. Uh, and of course, Hosea works on a similar principle. You know, he ends up uh, marrying Gomer, isn't it? Who, who turns out to be uh, a difficult, a difficult uh, relationship. So we understand love to be a, a characteristic which is at the very heart of God. And I think we'd agree that we'd understand love to be uh, a relationship which can't be forced. So uh, I can't order Emma to be in love with me, <laughs> even though she has married me. I can't make her stay in that state. I can show her my love and my faithfulness. I can hope that she continues to reciprocate, uh, but I have to acknowledge the possibility that she's free to decide otherwise, how we experience relationships. And uh, for me, I think it's one of the problems I have with that Calvinist model. Uh, so this idea that we're supposed to accept a, a God who is love, but he's decided in advance who will love him fast. Basically decided already he's going to get a chance to know of this love. And it seems to me to go completely uh, against the picture we have of God's nature, uh, as St. Peter describes it in Second Peter 3. So the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. And um, this is how Clark Pinnock makes this point. So the, the bit that I first read uh, describing this view is uh, quite an old one. I mean, I think, when did it come out? Uh, 2001, so it's over 20 years old by Clark Pinnock. He's died, he died a couple of years ago. Uh, and the, the book is called Most Moved Mover. And um, Pinnock says this, God does not go in for tactics of manipulation because he values personal relationships in which parties are voluntarily involved. God wants the love of real persons, not automatons. And for this reason, though God initiates the relationships, he cannot control them. Had God not granted a significant freedom, including the freedom to disappoint him, we would not be creatures capable of entering into loving relationships with him. So love, not freedom, is the central issue. That's the line of the evening, really, I think. Love, not freedom, is the central issue. And that idea as well of persons and not automatons. If my responses and decisions are already uh, pre-programmed pre pre uh, by God, am I interacting with him uh, in a way um, which makes me feel like I'm one being in relationship with another? It seems to me to be more like the way, I don't know, my central heating in my house relates to the temperature in the house. You know, it clicks in at a certain point, but it's all happening on autopilot. Um, now, one of the things that Pinnock will say is that this notion of God as planning everything in advance uh, is really more influenced by, um, by Greek or Roman concepts of God uh, than Jewish ones. So Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, Aristotle came up with the idea uh, of, of the, the sort of the, the, the greatest God being the unmoved mover, that there is this force in the world uh, which moves upon human beings but isn't moved itself. So it can act, but it can't be acted upon. Uh, and what Pinnock and other people argue is that as Gentiles came into the early church, uh, they brought with them some of their notions of what a really good God looks like. Good God is strong. Good God doesn't get upset. Uh, a good God uh, doesn't uh, allow uh, himself to be impacted or hurt by human beings. Uh, so completely undercut the sort of the, the Hebrew understanding uh, of God. And Reformed theologians will sometimes, we'll get to this when we get to prayer, they will sometimes use another term called divine impassibility, which is basically the idea that um, how God feels can't be changed by what we do. 
so that seems to me to undercut the notion of God grieving uh, or, or, or God uh, lamenting. Uh, I mean, Jesus himself, who is the ultimate revelation of God, appeared to be someone who got quite upset uh, by some of the things that, that he, he encountered. So that's one idea, the love of God. The second uh, idea in this view is that God has sovereignly decided to make some of his actions contingent on our actions and requests. So he's not worked out everything in advance uh, and expecting us to, to expect us to go along with what he's planned. He responds to what we do and he alters his course accordingly. It seems to me that when God creates humans, he says, you have authority. You, you are permissioned. You have a remit. You have a mandate. Go and name things. Call snakes, snakes, and lions, lions, and uh, whatever, all that stuff. Uh, and it seems to me that this idea of God responding uh, to events and to humans, it, it, it seems to be wired into Scripture on a number of occasions, even from the start. So you think of Abraham uh, bargaining with God on behalf of Sodom. Uh, you think of Moses pleading with God after Israel's unfaithfulness. It's an incredible scene. Remember, God, I mean, God basically is so angry and so upset that he effectively says, I'm, I'm just going to do away with Israel. Moses, you know, I'm going to scuttle the ship and I'm going to start again, Moses, with you. Moses pleads with him not to do so. And uh, we're told in Exodus 32, 14, that the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people after he's had this conversation uh, with, um, with, with Moses. And I mean, that's in the middle of a story where, I mean, God's just despairing all the time about Israel. These people who've come out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness and they're whinging and moaning all the time. And Moses is tearing his hair out and God's saying, yeah, I know, yeah, they're a bit of a nightmare, aren't they? But, you know, we, we stick with the plan. Uh, and the story sort of goes on this way. God makes it into the promised land, um, or Israel makes it into the promised land. You've got judges. Uh, then you've got uh, the, the story of kings uh, arriving. And there's that remarkable scene. Some of us might be familiar with it, um, where uh, the people of Israel come up with the idea of monarchy. It seems as their rejection of God's original plan. And... Uh, they basically say, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king. So Israel's not supposed to be like all the other nations. It's supposed to be distinctive. And Samuel sort of remonstrates with the people. He says, you don't want a king. You know, kings will make you work for them. They'll, they'll take the best of your produce. You'll have to fight for them. Bad idea. Uh, and then we read this in First Samuel 8. And the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. And you have this pattern and it seems to be played out then uh, in First Samuel, we'll be we'll be um, doing this in the sort of midweek Bible class on David uh, come the autumn. You've got Saul, uh, who is uh, of course um, appears as king. He initially seems to be the right man for the job. He's anointed by Samuel, and uh, there's that moment when Samuel says to all the people, "We're told, do you see the one whom the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people." And all the people shouted, long live the king. Fantastic. But it's not fantastic, is it? I mean, because the story doesn't go very well. And, and Saul appears to be, uh, I mean, he's a bit of a dud. You know, he's this good-looking bloke and he's head and shoulders above all Israel. But it's, it's, there's that kind of Peter principle at work where he's, he's basically promoted to his level of incompetence. It's a very sad story. He's exposed in the role. And he's rejected. And just uh, a little bit later, just five chapters after Sephir Samuel 10, we're told, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. 
hearts are striking longing. And is that the description of a God who is completely in control, always getting his own way? And the whole David story seems to be uh, rooted in a kind of things have gone wrong and we are slightly having to tear things up and, and, and start again and, and trying to do things a bit more properly this time, we hope. And, um, you know, I, 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 I just think uh, there are other stories. We, we, we don't have time to go into them all, but you see them in Scripture. You've got Jonah, God relents, God changes his mind. Uh, about the punishment he's going to uh, bring on uh, Nineveh. Um, now, it's, it's fair to say as well, this is the third principle, it's getting near the end of, of, of the principles. Open theism, it's not portraying a God who is powerless, but it's uh, portraying a God who limits his power because of his love. Uh, and again, to use the language of, of, of Clark Pinnock, God chooses to exercise a general rather than a meticulous providence. Uh, so basically, I think what he's saying is um, God does have a plan. And when you look at the biblical story, it seems clear he has a plan. He has purposes. There are things that he wants to do. There are things that he resolves to do. There is clearly uh, an end point in history uh, which God is working towards. When, when all evil will be defeated, the last enemy to be defeated will be death. But does that necessarily mean God is working out the details of every individual life uh, within that? So one of the things Clark Pinnock talks about, he uses this, this phrase, a, a partially settled future. Uh, and, and he says uh, in his book that scripture makes a distinction with respect to the future God is certain about some aspects of it, but uncertain about other aspects of it. He is certain about what he's decided to do and what will inevitably happen, but less certain about what creatures uh, may freely do. And I think you, you, you see that sometimes, particularly, I mean, there are scenes in the prophets where God seems to plead with people uh, and ask them to do certain things and has worked out how he might respond if they do certain things, but he doesn't quite seem to know the answer. So Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah 3 is a passage um, which speaks of Israel's unfaithfulness. Jeremiah, of course, has this very hard task of calling Israel to repent. Uh, and, and we read Jeremiah speaking on God's behalf. I thought after she has done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return and her false sister Judah saw it. I hoped, thought she'd return, but she didn't. And um, there's one more verse uh, from Jeremiah which makes uh, a similar point. At another moment, God says, this is chapter 18, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will plant and build it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I had intended to do to it. So I haven't, you know, it's not pre-planned. And, and, and God, I think, always hopes and wants that we will relent. He doesn't want to punish, but he may find himself uh, in, in that position. Uh, so like I say, I'm not saying that God has... Uh, is not planning what will happen in, in, in the world. I'm sure that he has planned uh, and I'm sure he has good purposes for our lives and, and things he might call us to do and things he might lay in our hearts. I'm just not sure that he is in control of every individual uh, instance that, that, that happens in the world or incident. Uh, and I guess that, that gets me to the, the final point that the, the people who write about this open theism perspective, and it's become more of a movement in recent years, uh, will present a picture of God who uh, is in the fight against evil and not uh, planning evil. Uh, somebody who's really interesting to read on, uh, on this uh, perspective is Greg Boyd. I think some of us here heard him at Revive a number of years ago. And uh, Greg Boyd, one of his, his chunkier works, uh, is, is a book called God at War, where um, 
he has what he calls this kind of warfare perspective on, on the Bible, where he basically says the Bible is a book that you can understand through, through the paradigm of God fighting evil and God eventually overcoming evil. Uh, and you see that um, in, uh, in books like Job, you know, where God is fighting to tame the natural order. He, he fights with Leviathan, do you remember, the sea monster. Uh, can he tame him? Uh, fights creatures like Behemoth. Um, you see it in his intention to judge countries or people who are oppressing the righteous uh, and, and the poor. Uh, you see it in Jesus. I mean, Jesus comes to uh, bind the strong man and defeat evil powers which enslave people. But even Jesus himself uh, encounters scenes where, where his power seems to be constrained by the way other human beings are acting and other agents are acting. So remember, he goes to Nazareth and he can't do any act of power. He can't do miracles in Nazareth uh, because of unbelief. You know, so this is one of the big questions that we need to face. Is God always uh, getting his way? I think if we look at the world, I'm not sure God is always getting his way. And I think God weeps and laments evil. But the way that he fights evil is in a bizarre way to let evil defeat him, it seems, initially. Uh, and he has won a victory, but we're, we're, we're told, aren't we? You know, Paul says... We live in a world. Remember, he talks about 1 Corinthians 15 uh, and the effects of resurrection. Uh, and, and he basically says, the time will come in the future when, when all the powers in the world have to submit to me, but not yet. We, we still live in, in a world which is disordered. So, uh, to summarize the perspectives uh, of open theism, uh, We'll get the graph up again or that table up again. So does God know the future totally? Well, no, uh, he doesn't. He might have plans. There might be things he wants to happen. But he doesn't completely know how every detail of our lives will work out. Uh, does God know counterfactuals? Well, yes, he does. Because we are free to choose alternative possibilities and alternative paths. Uh, does he take a risk in creation? Well, yes, he does. He loves. Love involves uh, a risk. Uh, does God specifically permit all evils? Well, open theists would say no. Uh, that we are responsible for our actions. And evil agents who act within the world, uh, both uh, on individuals and structurally are responsible. And what's the nature of human freedom? It's it's libertarian, it's real, we do have freedom. <laughs> it's, it's not an illusion. And can power change God's mind? Uh, yeah. So I'll just, um, I'm just going to talk about, uh, for a couple more minutes, and then we'll have a discussion about whether or not this makes sense. Uh, what are the practical implications of this? Well, it seems to me, if you follow the open theist view, First of all, you've got a different perspective on suffering. Um, and, and again, we know we said this question of suffering comes up all the time. If you believe that we are free to take our own actions and our own decisions, then we, we no longer have to defend God's goodness we, we, against the charge of all the bad things he's done. We no longer have to square the circle in saying God is good, but he permits all these, these terrible things. And instead, I think the answer becomes, uh, you know, wh where is God in all of this? He is with the suffering. He is on the cross. And he is identifying and his heart is breaking uh, with those who suffer. He bears our pain. He makes himself vulnerable. So Clark Pinnock says, we can say that God does not want horrors like the Holocaust to happen. They are genuine tragedies that God did not will and which are not part of some greater good. He did not ordain them and in fact weeps over them and we too are entitled to be outraged by them. So, um, and I think this is helpful. It's not just about what things go on in our world which we struggle with, but what about what goes on in our individual lives. You know, if, if 
if people can change and, and or if history can change and be at the whim of, of people taking decisions, you know, people can change. Um, I, um, I, I, I sometimes come across churches and they call ministers and uh, they vote 100% for a minister to go to a church. Oh, isn't that marvellous? God has spoken. And then things don't work out. And um, they ask themselves, well, did we fail to hear from God? Did we get all of this wrong? Maybe God was sending that person to that church at that moment. Maybe God didn't completely foresee how things were going to work out. Maybe, uh, you know, people can change. A bit like Saul. Saul finds himself in a certain job in the role of the king and uh, things don't quite work out. Um, a minister who has done well in one church goes to that new one and it's just different. Uh, maybe when a marriage goes wrong, it's not because we got our guidance wrong uh, and we fail to listen. It's just that people change. Uh, and, and people can let other people down. You know, it's, it's um, that we don't have to beat ourselves up, that, that we have got this stuff wrong. I think as well, I found this helpful because um, it, it's just a model we can more consistently live with. Um, I remember years ago uh, in the church that we trained in, uh, in, in Bromsgrove, uh, they used to hold uh, a missionary prayer meeting once a month. And uh, one morning, one of the leaders got up and encouraged uh, everyone to come along to the prayer meeting that night. And then we got to the prayer meeting that evening, and um, he started the prayer meeting by saying, it's not to your credit that you've come along. God planned at the beginning of our lives who was going to be here tonight. And I remember thinking... <laughs> hang on, you got up in front of the whole church this morning and tried to persuade us all to come. How does, how does that make sense? I mean, if God's pre-programmed this, why did you even publicize the event? Why, d why did you tell people the starting time and the venue? And it uh, gets us back to the evangelism question. And um, again, Clark Pinnock says this. I think he expresses it very well. There's an intuition in us that is difficult to shake. And I refer to the deep sense that human behaviour is not entirely shaped by causal factors, but is partially self-determining. It's an intuition that people hold in practice, even when they deny intellectually. For example, we hold others responsible for their actions, whether praiseworthy or noteworthy. We do not believe God is the only significant agent. We do not consider the fact that a person holds a different viewpoint than ours as something they were predestined to do. And we exhort one another because we assume that people can change their ways. We just live. We try to persuade people every day. Please don't do this thing. Please listen to me. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just we, we have that sense of living in a world where all the time we're interacting with people. Uh, and, and we're making decisions and they are as well. Uh, and then finally, uh, I just think open theism is helpful with regards to, 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 to prayer. Why do I pray? Uh, what difference uh, does it make? Well, again, Calvinists would say uh, we pray because it doesn't change anything, but God commands us, uh, and it means we can build our relationship with God. But actually, if all I'm doing is praying, and he's never really actually listening in response, is that a relationship? Uh, and Greg Boyd um, says on this issue, the open view is able to declare without qualification or inconsistency that some of the future genuinely depends on prayer. And on a practical level, this translates into people who are more inclined uh, to pray with passion and urgency. And I'm never quite sure about that comment. I, I think you have to be careful. if Because um, there's got to be some way in which God is free to respond. I mean, if, if, if prayer just becomes, oh, I've really got to pray really, really hard because if I don't pray really, really hard, nothing's going to change. You know, I, I don't think God is asking us to pray and saying, you've got to solve all of this and, and prayer is a test of strength machine. And if I pray hard enough, you know, I slam down and ding, you know, a bell goes off in heaven and, and, and now something good will happen. I don't think it's like that, but I think, I think prayer really matters. I think prayer can change situations. You know, I have sat in this 
sanctuary uh, on one occasion with another minister and we have grappled and prayed <laughs> about things that were really difficult in this church uh, at a particular moment, asking God, just pleading with God uh, to change things. And I, I do that because I think I've got to pray harder. So that's that alternative perspective. I don't know what we think about this. I've just put up the same questions, really. And uh, is there anything we agree with about this view? I mean, is there anything that makes us anxious? to pray. Before I do, uh, the final word I thought should go to this uh, profound uh, work of theology uh, as well. Uh, and this is, uh, this line is talking to us, Lucy. Uh, I think um, that um, Lucy says, boy, look at the rain. Water that floods the whole world. And is this Linus? I think is it. Yeah, he responds, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is a rainbow. And uh, Lucy says, you've taken a great load off my mind. To which the answer is, sound theology has a way of doing that. Um, so, you know, coming back to the idea of discipline, sound theology, you know, it can take a lot off our mind. We don't have to live. Uh, with these tensions, there are there are other ways. The lies, yes, yeah. I should have mentioned as well, the um, Greg Boyd who I talked about, he, he wrote quite a short little book uh, which is very accessible called God of the Possible, uh, which is a really good, you, you know, if you wanted to look at something with, to, to get more into this, but you wanted something fairly accessible, it's a good, good book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can I pray? Yeah, just pray. So loving God, um, you know, as we go from this place, these are these are big things we've grappled with. Lots of sort of lots to get our heads around. Um, I pray that uh, this would be for us a means of liberation and a means of uh, of assurance and just constructive. And uh, I pray uh, just as we go and we reflect on these things that uh, you grant us your peace. You know, we we don't know what our the the, the week holds. Um, we don't know what's going to happen, but we know you're going to be with us and alongside us. And may that be enough uh, that we have you, Jesus. That spirit, we have you with us. That Father, uh, you look upon us. So I pray for the things we're going to do, the people we're going to meet, uh, the events which will come up. Pray for building work. I actually pray for what's going to happen here uh, tomorrow, that it would go well as, uh, as it all really sort of kicks off and, and, and starts to happen. Uh, watch over that. Uh, so our blessing, friends, that we often pray uh, at evening time here. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you, wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he's shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into our joy. Amen.